This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. I actually did a message about six years ago on that. I'm not going to do that today. Um, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace, say great grace, was upon them all. Great power to witness, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace is what we have available to us to live for Jesus. Great grace is what is upon His church to overcome the enemy. To overcome the the ploys and the tactics and the strategies of the enemy. How many would admit this morning that by turning on your phones in the morning and getting all your news highlights and your news feeds and seeing what's going on in the world, I think we would all agree that it doesn't look pretty. Right? That there's enough things in our current culture right now that can be concerning. I would say that we are at a place right now culturally that I am probably the most concerned about than I've ever been in my life. Not because I'm afraid. Not because I'm uh, you know, giving the enemy more props than he deserves. But because there's a reality of the enemy's work in our cultural norms than ever before. Some people would argue we're in the last days. I wouldn't disagree with it. Why? Because there's something that's going on where the enemy's on mission. But can I say this morning, what bothers me more than what the enemy's doing is what the church is not doing. Can I be that honest this morning? This whole week, I've been taking from Faithine's message last week, and I've been thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it, and I am literally been doing self-evaluation all week. What am I doing to make a difference? What am I doing to stand up for God? What, when's the last time I actually led somebody to Christ? It's, it bothers me. And it's not meant to be necessarily a harsh thing or like a, oh, shame on us. But I feel like God is sending out the bat signal and it's time for us to respond. You know what I'm saying? The bat signal's gone out. And it's time for the church to respond. Can I say this morning that a great worship set will not grow a church? Great programs won't grow a church. Great kids' ministry won't grow a church. I mean, it's definitely good, and we should do our best to do everything in excellence, but it's great grace on the church that grows a church. How many know that healthy things grow? Amen? I've been thinking about this word grace, and Louis Giglio, for those that don't know Louis Giglio, just a great guy, started the passion movement down in Atlanta, Georgia, and he made this comment about grace He says, grace is simply this. It's God at work. I love that. It's God at work. What's God at work in your life? Can I say this morning, grace is not dependent upon the ingenuity or the the wisdom of men, but it is upon the supernatural power of God in our lives. How do I know that? Well, God used 12 uneducated and untrained men to change the world. I'm not against education. I'm not against training. As a matter of fact, I'm all for that. But God used, supernaturally, 
12 untrained and uneducated people that got people's attention, not just because of the things that they did or the things they performed through the power of God, but because they actually were untrained and uneducated. So much so that the Pharisees looked at them in Acts chapter 4 and went, what in the world happened? Those are untrained and uneducated men. And then the next statement gets me as far as I'm concerned. They say, they must have been with Jesus. I want the testimony of my life to be, he must have been with Jesus. Because nothing else could have added up to that without Jesus. Amen? Anything outside of Jesus is secondary. And actually, a matter of fact, it doesn't even compete. It doesn't even compute. Interestingly enough, in the book of Acts, the guy who wrote the book of Acts was Luke. Luke also wrote the book of Luke. In case anyone wasn't quite sure, uh, he wrote two books. And interestingly enough, in both books, he... Actually, there are some scholars that believe that when he wrote the book of Luke, he actually just wrote one book, and Acts was kind of the second half of the book of Luke. Um, Some scholars have kind of tried to figure out where exactly the dividing line was and if it actually was two different books. Um, But I'm saying that this morning to say that there's a lot of kind of continuous thought. There's a lot of things that Luke literally embeds into the book of Acts that are very similar even in phraseology and wording and in thought and concept than it was in the book of Luke. Interestingly enough, in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, he writes both books to one individual. He writes the book to this man by the name of Theophilus. And I've often wondered, why? There's no scriptural precedent as to why they wrote the book to him. There's no kind of history on this man named Theophilus that would make us feel like anything's important about him. And I've come to the conclusion, as many other scholars have come to the conclusion of, that Luke wasn't just writing the book as a story for Theophilus to read. He was actually calling Theophilus to the mission of Christ. And saying, you've got to either reject this 100% or be 100% on board. You can't sway in between. You can't sit on the fence in between that. You've got to be all in. You've got to look at that and be all in. So Luke was challenging Theophilus. Are you on the Jesus mission? Can I say this morning, um, and I'm saying this from personal experience, we believe in our connect groups. We are a huge supporter of our connect groups. We believe in our equip classes. Those are our two main functioning discipleship-making processes at Impact Church. We believe in them. But coming to a connect group and coming to equip classes and coming to church on Sunday and coming to a prayer meeting or pre-service prayer or coming to a special event is not going to make you a disciple of Christ. Oh, it helps. It helps to facilitate some stuff. But at the end of the day, you have to open up your heart and unlock something. Allow God to unlock something in your heart. You have to have a desire. How many know that if you don't have a desire for something, you're not going to see it? But if you have a desire for something, and God says, I want to I see that, and I'm going to pour into that same desire. I'm going to pour it back in. God's looking for a heart that is surrendered, a heart that is submitted to His mission, to His call. I've seen people that have come to church for years, and not much has changed. How do I know? That was me. I came to church for years. And I didn't look like 
very much of a Christian other than I knew how to play the game. How many have ever known you can play a game, make it look real good, say amen at the right moments in the pastor's sermon just to make himself feel good? You can come to the prayer meetings. You can send a little Christmas card every year to the pastor's family. But you know what? It doesn't change if you don't literally look at the eyes, the standard of Christ, and make a decision. I want to be like that. Amen? I'm going to read the very first part of Luke chapter 1. This is the, the opening to Theophilus. Luke speaking, and he says, So many others have tried their hand on putting together a story of the wonderful harvest of Scripture and history that took place among us, using reports handed down by the original eyewitnesses who served this word with their very lives. Since I have investigated all the reports in close detail, starting from the story's beginning, I decided to write it all out for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you've been taught. I think he was on the fence. And Luke is saying, I'm telling you right now, by the end of these uh, chapters in this book, you're going to be either off the fence, one way or the other, and that's my goal. Amen? So what in the world is our mission? I wanted to tie in a little bit of kind of the impact story today, if that's okay. I don't do this very often. I probably should do it more often. But when it comes to the very vision and the very heartbeat of Impact Church, we are all about one very simple thought. We want to live like Jesus and love like Jesus. That's it. We shorten it up every once in a while. We say we want to live love. We want to live like Jesus. We want to love like Jesus. When we live like Jesus, we're literally making a declaration. More of you and less of me. What is the greatest thing that comes against us as believers today? I, I, and I, I'd be willing to take a, a bit of a kind of a, a, a leap of faith on this one this morning. I honestly don't believe the biggest enemy against us today is the enemy, Satan. I think it's us. We get in the way more of what God wants to do than the enemy ever can or ever will. How many know that the enemy is fairly easy to recognize? Right? He's fairly easy to recognize what he's doing. The problem is, is sometimes we don't see how self gets involved. And God wants to say this morning, less of you, more of me. Same prayer that John the Baptist prayed. To live like Jesus is our heartbeat. Philippians 2, 5-8, it says this. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. To live like Jesus is our goal. Second part is to love like Jesus. How many know that uh, if we're all being honest this morning, when we see things going wrong in our world and we see a letter being written to the Whig Standard apologizing for the cry, um, in that very moment that we read that, um, there's no love in our heart in that moment. Something rises up in our hearts that says, how dare they? Who do they think they are? 
How many know that our natural response is not love? Just look at Facebook and you'll find out very quickly. Listen, our natural response is not love. You've got to literally retrain and retrain and retrain to get your response to be first love. So what has to change? What has to to move? Can I say this morning that the greatest test that Scripture talks about when when it comes down to whether we can love or not is how well we love our enemies. Jesus died for the very people that were putting him to death. How can we love our enemies? Can I say this morning, there's an easy step to start. Pray for them. Can I say, when you pray for your enemies, your perspective of them changes, and God starts to reveal his heart for them, for you. You start to see them in a different light. How many know that just because somebody does something wrong, it doesn't make it right, okay? But how many know that God's ultimate purpose is to redeem everything that's been made wrong? He wants to redeem everything. That's the heart of God, which is why we've said from day one, this is about Jesus. This whole church is about Jesus. The whole focus of this church is about Jesus. It's about living like him, and it's about loving like him. It's about living love. Why? Because when we do that, we are literally going to be light penetrating darkness. Darkness can't stay when we look right in the eyes of what the enemy is doing and love them into the kingdom of God. Now, can I bring a little disclaimer? Because I know how people usually hear things and take things. So I'm going to bring a disclaimer. Love does not mean you don't tell them the truth. Because if you don't have truth, we ultimately don't love them. Because the Bible says that if we don't discipline sons and daughters, Hebrews chapter 12, that they are illegitimate sons and daughters. How many know that our children need discipline sometimes? That's right, we're shaking our heads. Come on now. What would happen if you never disciplined your children? Well, some of you are like, well, I, I know you want to come over to my house and see it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Just come over to my house and keep an eye on one particular child. I'm not going to mention which one. There's just one you got to look at. The other four are saintly. One of them is on the road to spiritual discovery. You know what I'm saying? And she discovers it daily 53 times from her parents. Oh, thank you, Lord God. God, I thank you for great grace. Lord, for great grace to be upon us to parent our children well. Oh, hallelujah. Pray for us. But I tell you right now, when we can learn to speak the truth in love, can I say this morning, I believe that truth in love will disarm the enemy's defenses more than you ever think it will. People are on a journey, they're looking for truth. Even though they don't know it, they're looking for truth. Why? Because they know ultimately they're unsatisfied. How do I know that? Because they're still looking. How many know that when people are still looking, it means they haven't found something? When they're still looking because they haven't found something, it means they're not satisfied with the answers that they've been given. When you're not satisfied with the answers you've been given, you keep looking. It's the same process of every human being. They've created something in in post-secondary education that I think is brilliant, and I hope you never forget about it. It's called critical thinking. It's this concept that was introduced many, many hundreds of years ago, and it tells you 
to challenge the thought of the day and search it out so that you can get a satisfactory, educated, intellectual response that's based upon fact, not based upon emotion. I think it's a great idea. Somehow our culture today thinks that we don't have to use that anymore. That we should just accept whatever's around. Can I say this morning, to love like Jesus doesn't mean we become the doormat for every cultural norm that doesn't fit what we want and that we've got to go on Facebook just not to feel pressure. We like it on Facebook. Just to say, hey, you know, we're, we're loving them like Jesus. Can I say this morning, I think Jesus' likes on Facebook and our likes on Facebook would be two totally different things. Would you not agree? To love Him means we have to love truth. But you know what solidifies and gives credibility to our love? When we live it. That's why we always say to live like Jesus and to love like Jesus. Live. Love. Your love only gains credibility by how you live. How you live empowers your love. Amen? Amen. I want to leave a third thought. We don't have this in our, in our, uh, our vision, our little bullseye. But I, I want to add this in because it ties in with our little, our little statement that's right underneath our name on our logo. How many have ever seen it, make your mark, leave a legacy? How many have ever read that and went, oh, that's a cool statement. I wonder what they mean. Well, thank you for asking. Um, it's talking about what you leave behind. How many know that we're trained from very, very young, we're trained to save up money and to have an inheritance so that we can pass on to our children? But I want to use Sandra's family as an example, and I'm not saying that you should be like this, so don't, don't hear me that I'm saying be like this. But I want to share a story about their life that has touched my life very deeply for a number of years. They chose to live a certain way on purpose. They lived in a rental situation even though they could have afforded a house. Some people would argue that's not wise because you should have equity and have more money. And, and I would say, you know what, there's truth to that and there's truth to whatever you want to do. But the reason why they rented is they always wanted to work at a situation is that God, if God, you called us back to the mission field, we wanted to get up and go with no strings attached and get out of here as fast as we could. Because they lived with a missionary mindset. God, I'm on mission. So God, if you want me to quit my job as a doctor today, if you want me to quit my job as a midwife today and go back to Africa, go to Papua New Guinea, go to wherever uh, place in the world that they have been connected to in the past, they're going to get up and go. And one of the statements Sandra's dad used to make to her and make to us was, I'm so sorry that you know, I don't think that there's going to be much that I'm going to be able to give you. I don't have much of an inheritance. And Sandra used to look at her father and tears in her eyes and say, you've given me everything. You've given me the, her- the heritage of a godly life. You've given me the heritage of what it's like to be on mission and to always think the mission of Christ. You've given me a heritage of what it means to understand salvation, to understand the freedom in Christ. We don't need anything else. Legacy isn't about what you physically leave behind. It's about the moments that have touched people's hearts. It's those principles and it's those stories that we still reminisce about, Kenneth and Magdalena. Why? Because they left their mark on our lives. I can see it this morning and say, I could probably name you 20 names off the top of my head 
of people that have got their markings all over my life. They have marked me. You say some of the things that I do, and I could sit there and go, well, that's not really me. That's actually Frank Satius. Oh, yeah, that's not really me. That was Bob McLean. Oh, that's Linda Jeffs. That's Dave Andrews. That's Hervey Shank. I could go down the list. These are people that have marked my life. Can I say this morning, when you're on mission with Christ, the natural byproduct of being on mission with Christ is that we bring along people with us to share that mission with so that when we move on or we've gone on, not just from this world, but maybe even to another city, to another place, we have inputted into those people the very heartbeat of heaven, the very mission of Christ into their heart so that they follow on. Can I say this morning that if we do everything to accomplish what we want to accomplish through our ministry and our ministry call and we die, guess what happens? It dies when you die. But when we take what God's given us and constantly give it away, it changes everything. Changes everything. Many scholars believe, or many people in the last 300 years believe that George Whitfield was the greatest preacher in the world. Greatest preacher that ever lived. Greatest ability to, to proclaim the, the truth of God's word in such clarity, with such depth, with such heart, that thousands of people came to hear him preach. And there was a contemporary of his that was around during that day. His name was John Westland. He started something called Little House Groups. Maybe you've heard of them. They're called Small Group Ministry. John Wesley died. His small groups went on. How do we know? We have them. Churches all over the world have small groups. We call ours connect groups. Some call them life groups. Some call them something else. Back in the day, we used to call them cell groups until, you know, (laughs) some things went wrong in the world. And then we thought to ourselves, it's probably not good to call them cell groups because they may think we're terrorist cells in uh, Ontario somewhere and that's not good and they're going to come and then we're going to have an audit from CRA and then, you know, CSIS is going to be chasing us all over the world and there's going to be people following our cards and showing up at our the public schools where our kids go to school and then we're thinking, what's going on? So we decided to get really wise and change the name. So we call them connect groups. Why? Because we want people to connect. That's great. That's good, right? Although we could go back to cell groups, Pastor Ray. I think that's a great name. What we'll do is we'll put, you know, pictures. No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. We won't do that. But can I say this morning, legacy always outlives you. So what are you leaving behind? What are you inputting into the next generation? I know I've shared a little bit about this, but I can honestly say this last year has probably been one of the most fun years of Sandra and I's lives, hanging out with young adults. I feel young, which is awesome. But you know what's been a constant reminder for me? Every single week, I'm not living for myself. I'm living for them. I'm going to give away everything I've got to them, and I'm going to empower them with everything I've got to see them do what God's called them to do, because it's not about me. It's about their sphere of influence. It's about who God can call them to. You know what's the most freeing thing as a pastor? When it's not about you. You know what's the most freeing thing? Is that we don't have to create a kingdom or a ministry. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. From day one we said everything about this church is about Jesus. 
We're going to live like Jesus. We're going to love like Jesus. The whole focus is going to be on Jesus. Why? Because I don't want the focus to be on me. I, if, you know, if you've known me any length of time, you'll know I hate it. I despise it. I hate when there's pressure on me to, to be something or to be there for everybody and do everything. I just can't stand that pressure. But one thing I have done is I keep pointing back to Jesus. But let's keep going back to the Word. What does the Word say? What does God want you to do right now? What, how can we partner with you and pray with you and, and, and see you be empowered to what God's got on your life? Why? Because then the, the pressure is off, number one. Number two, here's what's so cool. We're saying, you know what? The following God part, the hearing God's voice part, is not as hard as you think. And I think you have it in you to hear from God, to, to follow God, and to obey what God's calling you to do. Can I say this morning, I think some of the most complicated things to legacy is that we try to infiltrate our legacy with everyone else's thoughts rather than trusting the mantle, the call, the uniqueness of God on our lives and pouring that into others. Can I say this morning that if I tried to be a John Bevere clone, I would be really pathetic. If I tried to be a Joyce Meyer, that would be weird because I'm male, so that would be very strange, but it would not be good. If I tried to be a, you know, Bill Hybels or a Rick Warren or a Brian Houston, or if I tried to sound like Taya Smith, that would be really cool, but I can't do it. Even though I want to some days, it's like if I could just sing that song like Taya Smith, man, that would be awesome. But I can't. Can I say this morning, legacy only comes when you live in your lane. Every relay race around the world, if you step out of your lane, you're disqualified. And too many people in ministry constantly step out of your lane into someone else's lane because you want what they have. And God simply says legacy is locked up and hidden in how well you love and live like Jesus. And the overflow of your life gets on the people next to you. This is why my children tell worse jokes than I do. Because I've taught them well. It's awesome. It's awesome when they do some of the wackiest behaviors and Sandra always looks at me. I'm like, honey, it's not my fault. Blame my mother. But that doesn't work either because she's the sweetest person on the planet. So then I have nowhere to hide. And then I come down to the realization I'm leaving a legacy. I just don't know if it's the one I want to leave. But man, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving a legacy. It's awesome. Woo, Jesus. Can I say this morning that being a spectator, being an audience, can't change the world? Being a spectator doesn't start revolutions. Being a a spectator does not advance the kingdom of God. At some moment, you have to take those things that have been poured into you and you got to grab that baseball bat. And you got to step up to the plate. And some of you may think, well, the only thing I know how to do is bunt. It's okay. Lay down the perfect bunt down the, left, down the third baseline. The guy's playing behind the bag. Make him look silly. Drop a bunt down and just run like crazy to first base. We've got this mindset that says legacy's got to be huge. Legacy is huge. When it's passed, one generation to the next, 
You cannot run a relay race with one runner. You need generations. You need people that are going to pass the baton to the next generation. Can I say this morning, we're, we're eight and a half, almost nine years into this church. And I'm excited by the fact. Can I, can I tell you what excites me for a second? You know what excites me? Every Sunday morning, we got 50 kids down these hallways. 50 kids. When we were peaking, we were 60. Bad week is 40. But we got a generation of kids down this hallway that are going to make the enemy's life miserable. Because they stand up for their faith. We saw our youth group ignite that grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And in the last two years have quadrupled in size. But they haven't quadrupled in numbers. They've quadrupled in focus and in passion and in what they're doing. They're on mission. If you were here last week, you saw I literally counted 33 people. Kind of a cool number, eh? 33 people across the front of this altar under the age of 30, praying and believing God. God would touch their lives. It's the next next generation. It's the next group of people. What are we giving away? When I worked at John Howard Society, I was there for a number of years, and I, the one thing that I did every single year, with I think one year being an exception, I took students from Durham College in the Human Services Counseling Program every year. I took two students every year, and I loved it. No one else wanted them. I did. And they always asked you, why do you want them? It takes like a month to like get them trained. I went, yeah, but then the last eight months of the year, they do all my work. I don't do nothing. I sit in the lunchroom all day and answer their questions every hour when they got a question. That's all I did. No, I'm kidding. I did do a job, but I loved it. Why? Because you're empowering somebody else. You're connecting with somebody else. You're literally passing on what you know to somebody else. And what we see is a natural little byproduct of what my heart represented. What fights against it? Well, it's pretty much the same stuff. It's ourselves, it's our time, it's all those things. But I tell you right now, I believe we're at a place in our lives where culture's not getting any better. The world isn't getting any better. But I'm excited, and I'll tell you why. Because whenever something in the world goes terribly wrong, it challenges the church to say, What are you doing? Are you going to worry about it? And are you going to be stressed about it? Are you going to go hide in a corner and and, and build a little bunker like the Y2K bunkers? Anyone built those? Okay. And you get a whole bunch of water just in case the world ends. Or are we going to leave the upper room like the disciples did 2,000 years ago and saw 3,000 people come to Christ not by having a prayer meeting in an upper room and staying there and believing God to supernaturally touch people's hearts, but by having a prayer meeting, getting so stirred up, being on mission, going out into the streets 
and telling every single person they could see about the gospel message of Jesus Christ, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, about the forgiveness of sins, about you don't need to live in that pain of addiction and that pain of loneliness and that pain of regret any longer. God paid, made a way for you. His name is Jesus Christ. He came. He's the Son of God, lived a sinless life. The Lamb of God that's soon to be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming back in awesomeness and in glory. Why? Because He's done something that you could never do. He solved the sin issue. He solved the death issue. I'm grateful that Kenneth's legacy did not end when he died. It still lives in Sandra and it lives in our kids. And I can't wait to get to heaven to tell him. I just want to let you know how we lived. We lived this way because of you. I just feel like we're at a moment. I feel like there's a moment that God's literally sending out the alarm. And He's simply saying this morning, it's time to be on mission. It's time to be on the right mission. It's good to work. I, I, I encourage you to work. I encourage you to work hard, make a living, save up money for your kids. It's all good. But don't be so focused on the success of your earthly life that you forget to live with an eternal mindset. The reality is, is we all live one life and then we die. And in the moment of death, the Bible literally says that we're going to come face to face with our Maker. We've got to answer a question. What did we do with Jesus? What did we do with His Gospel? Not just what did we do to accept it, but what did we do to give it away? Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com.